This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Oh, Lena, are you looking forward today? Do you know what? I am actually because I quite like Matt. Um, not so much the navelness, but um, he's a very good speaker. So I think we should have a good one today. Okay, well, tell, tell everyone who is here. So Matt Willis is a naval aviation historian specialising in the First and Second World War. He's written books like his World War II thriller, Harpoon and Bastion, Supermarine Spitfire and Flying to the Edge. So welcome, Matt. Hello. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk about the Battle of Taranto with you today. Um, so give us some, give us some background, like an overview of what the situation was in Europe and the Mediterranean in June 1940. Okay, so in June 1940, the war is going pretty badly for the Allies. Um, at this point, we've got uh, Germany has invaded uh, Norway uh, back in April, and it's invaded uh, France and uh, Belgium and various other places. Um, the Allies have pretty much been pushed out of Norway completely by this stage, and they're, you know just about. Um, there's a couple of last bits that they're doing there and then they're, they're clearing out. Um, and it's almost inevitable that France is going to fall um, at this point. So, so things are looking pretty bad in the Northern European um, part of the, of the war. Um, 4th of Ju June, uh, the, the Dunkirk evacuation ends. Churchill gives his fight on the beaches speech. Uh, ten days later, Paris falls, um, and uh, you know, things are looking pretty bad. Uh, and then, uh, just just to throw it into the mix, um, Mussolini um, declares war on the UK and France on the 10th of June um, because he foresees uh, an easy, swift, total victory against the Allies. Um, and he's reported as saying, all I need is a few thousand dead and I can sit at the table as a man who has fought. So, you know, he's looking for the spoils of war. So I want to talk a little bit about the Italian Navy. Um, Sorry, uh -huh. I took, what a scumbag. I was just going to add that in there. Like, what a scumbag. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean... It, it's, uh, you know, he wants to just kind of completely rush in and, and just kind of, um, you know, and he does, he invades France. Um, he, you know, the, the, the Germans managed to sort of sweep over most of France, but just towards the end, uh, Mussolini manages to sort of sneak in and kind of grab a little strip of France, just, just so he's got a bit of territory as well. 
Um, and, it's not uh, you know, dissimilar to, to Italy trying to um, get involved in World War One, isn't it? And like pimping themselves out to the highest bidder, basically in 1915. Yeah, yeah, yeah. P- you know, pick, pick a pick a side, and um, uh, you know, if you don't like that one, then you can always join the other side later. So well, it was all based yeah. on the demands. It was who was going to give them more stuff if they won, wasn't it? Well, that's how yeah. it comes across from Asquith, anyway. Who's really I'm not sure, impressed? Yeah. Um, but yeah, let, let's get back to Toronto. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, um, <laughs> It's okay. Don't go for it, Matt. Sorry. No, no, no. Sorry. I was going to say, so what the the problem for the Royal Navy that this creates is uh, they've been fighting in uh, the the North Sea uh, and around the English Channel. um, And the Mediterranean for them has been a nice peaceful area where they can train their crews. um, They can they can do lots of, uh, you know, training with the aircraft carriers just to get the air crews ready. Um, and, you know, they've got their territories and their interests around the Mediterranean, but they're not really worried about those at this point. And then the declaration of war completely changes all that. So what other problems would uh, Britain now have to face with Italy on the Axis side? Um, several big problems, really. I mean, first is um, I mean, Britain relies at this point on getting a lot of its oil um, from the Middle East uh, through the Suez Canal. Um, so normally it would uh, it would it would bring all its um, its oil, send its tankers through the the Suez Canal, through the Mediterranean, out past Gibraltar, and you know around, and not have to uh, to worry too much about um, uh, you know about that that shipping lane, um, other than you know submarines and stuff. But but basically that's that's okay. Suddenly the Mediterranean split right down the middle. Um, you've got Italy in the way. Uh, and um, the, a very powerful Italian navy, uh, which really doesn't fancy letting the British just use um, the Mediterranean as a shipping route. Uh, you also have um, Italian territory in Libya, uh, which is next to Egypt, um, and Italy's quite keen on taking the Suez Canal for its own purposes. Uh, now, I mean, Mussolini, he wants to create an Italian empire anyway, so he, he would be quite happy to, to grab a chunk of North Africa, He's got his eye on uh, really total hegemony of the uh, the Adriatic, all the land around the Adriatic and the Balkans. You know, he wants to create this this kind of dominant Italian empire in, in the area. So, you know, it's a pretty big problem. It's got quite a strong military, particularly the Navy. Um, and um, and that's, that now creates all kinds of new problems for the British. What exactly are they fighting over? Um, well, the main thing is the, the Suez Canal, as I said. You also have um, the uh, Malta, um, which is a, a British um, possession at the time, um, where they had uh, an anchorage for the, for the fleet. Um, really, it all comes down to convoys. Um, the, the, the British are trying to send convoys um, to supply uh, its armies in Egypt, um, and to, to bring those supplies through the Mediterranean, and they're going east-west. Um, the Italians, meanwhile, they have their army in Libya. Um, as soon as war starts, they start pushing into Egypt and, uh, and trying to, to move on the Suez Canal, and they need to supply their, um, uh, their armies over there. So they're trying to send convoys north and south. So uh, essentially it comes down to the British are trying to keep their supplies going and stop the Italian supplies and the Italians are doing the same on the other side. For me, it sounded kind of complicated um, with all of this overlappingness and, and stop, trying to stop each other, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it is complicated. And you, you get into this kind of dance with, um, with the naval side because um, not, both sides, they have their particular strengths and weaknesses. They want to fight um, only in circumstances that will, that will favour them. Uh, this is a little bit less in the case of the, uh, the Royal Navy, um, which has this kind of buccaneering tradition and they tend to, you know, they idolise Nelson. They want to kind of, their instinct is just to fly at the enemy and, and you know, fight under whatever circumstances. But actually in the Mediterranean at this point, uh, the Royal Navy is somewhat weaker than the, uh, than the Italian Navy. The Italian Navy, on the other hand, um, they they have probably the strength in material terms, but they're generally a lot more cautious. Um, they're very much aware that they can't replace their ships quite as easily as the British can. So they're, um, they're quite cautious about only engaging with the British Navy when it really suits them. So you get this kind of dance where they're manoeuvring around each other and trying to manoeuvre the other side into a position where they can... Um, fight on their own terms um, and um, it does it does get complicated um, obviously it's complicated by all the other stuff um, going on as well um, Italy again you've got um, towards the end of towards the end of 1940 um, Mussolini is looking at Hitler's territorial gains and thinking I want some of that and they're looking at invading Greece um, which then will create a load more problems for the British because you know it'll 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 add a successful Italian invasion of Greece will give uh, Italy a lot more um, you know a big chunk of the Mediterranean that it has control over which you know creates even further problems so yeah it, it is complicated um, it's it's simple at its heart but it gets it gets quite technical quite quickly. Well, so talking about technicality. Right. Uh -huh. You need to tell us more about the Italian fleet and more about what their ships are like compared to the British Navy. OK, um, so unlike the German Navy, the Italian um, Navy has quite a classic, um, well-balanced Navy um, built around uh, battleships, which are you know, the largest, most powerful surface gun armed warships. So at the moment they have um, six uh, battleships. Um, a mixture of new ones. They've got two brand new battleships, which are some of the best in the world at this point. Um, and they've also got some some modernised World War One um, warships. Uh, now, I mean, so when I say modernised, I mean these are completely rebuilt. Um, the hulls are basically the same as the, the First World War ships, with some modernisation. But they've got new engines, new armament, new systems. Um, that enable them to fight. So they're pretty well on a par with, with a, a reasonable modern battleship. Um, and, you know, this is creating a big problem for the, uh, you know, they've got modern cruisers as well, so the medium-sized warships, uh, which are very fast, uh, very well-armed, um, and quite a lot of destroyers, which, you know, can be, a, they're a big threat to the, to the, to the Royal Navy. Uh, this is a good, well-balanced fleet, um, and, you know, it could really if it was used well uh, and if they had a bit of luck on their side they could really they could really kick the royal navy out of the mediterranean uh, if it came down to it um so explain to us a little bit about what the what is going on with the fleet air arm at the moment okay um so the fleet air arm uh is the naval um air this the naval air force it's the air force of the royal navy um they are really um, catching up with the Royal Navy itself. The, the Navy has, 
it's got some modern warships coming through. It's got a nice new modern warship in the uh, nice new modern aircraft carrier uh, in the Mediterranean in the shape of Ark Royal. Uh, and a couple of new aircraft carriers coming along, um, HMS Illustrious being the first of those. Um, but its aircraft are quite old and outdated, um, and it doesn't have very many of them. Uh, so its main uh, strike aircraft is a biplane um, called the Fairy Swordfish. Um, the, this sort of originated in about 1930, and it took a long time to develop, and it first flew in uh, 1935, entered service in 36. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a fabric-covered biplane um, in an era of uh, you know, smooth, sleek metal monoplanes. Yeah, it's top speed. It does about 130 miles an hour. With a torpedo attached, it's about 100 miles an hour. Uh, you know, it's a very slow aircraft. It has a lot of strengths in its own right, but, you know, against modern fighters, it's pretty much, you know, easy meat. Um, so uh, the British have a bit of a problem in this, um, in this aircraft, um, but it's, it's all they've got at the moment. What did the British Navy have that they didn't have before that would enable them, enable them to attack Toronto? Okay, uh, this is important um, because one of the, um, you know, what I should have said before really was actually, despite the weaknesses of the fleet air arm, it is actually, it's something that the Italians don't have. They've got a very big um, and very effective um, land-based air force, but they don't have an aircraft carrier. So the further, if you get far enough out to sea and you get out of the range of those Italian aircraft, um, then the British start to come into a more of a strong position because they've got aircraft from an aircraft carrier that can attack the uh, Italian ships that there isn't much that they can then do about it. Um, so they had their, um, their ferry swordfish, um, but uh, one of the things that they had been doing uh, quite a bit earlier on in the, in the campaign was they were, they were aware that they couldn't attack the Italian fleet really at, um, during the day when the Italian fleet was under the cover of its land-based aircraft. So they were trying to attack the Italian Navy at night in its ports. Uh, and so in some of the ports in North Africa, for example, um, they'd carried out sort of night torpedo attacks um, under cover of darkness. And they'd had a bit of success at this. Um, they'd sm sunk some smaller ships, um, one or two destroyers and a submarine. Um, but the, the big prize was at Taranto, where the Italian fleet had its main anchorage, and that was where they kept all their battleships and most of the cruisers. Um, it was too far away um, as, as things stood earlier on in the war. In, in, early, in the middle of 1940, it was too far, um, and it was the kind of place it was very heavily defended. Um, you can't really attack a port unless you have very good intelligence on where the defences are. So they have things like um, a boom across the entrance of the harbour, um, which stops you, um, yeah, stops you firing a torpedo from outside the harbour and it runs in and hits the ships inside. Um, you've got nets stretched across in front of the ships. Um, so if you try and drop a torpedo in the wrong place, it will just hit the net. Um, so you need very, very good intelligence. Um, and what, what we now had, the Royal Navy now had, um, you know, coming towards the end of, you know, into the autumn of 1940, is it's, it has very good intelligence and it has um, an, an increase in range of its swordfish. 
that will enable it to make that extra distance because um, and it also has a new aircraft carrier which can carry a few more aircraft and you know is very modern and has all the um, the right systems earlier on we just had an old aircraft carrier built for the end of the first world war called HMS Eagle it was very small didn't carry many aircraft and it kept breaking down so um, the RAF had just gained fortunately with the surrender of well I say fortunately um, it was kind of a silver lining to the cloud, but with the end or with the with the surrender of France, it meant that Britain was able to take over some of the orders of aircraft that they'd made from the Americans. And one of these aircraft was an aircraft called the Martin Maryland, which was a light bomber, um, but it was much faster, higher flying, um, and it was actually an excellent reconnaissance aircraft. So the RAF got some of these based at Malta. And suddenly it meant they could take much better photographs, get much more real-time information on what was going on in the fleet at Toronto than they had before. And before they had that, there was no way that the um, fleet air arm could have really countenanced an attack on Toronto. It meant they knew where all the torpedo nets were, all the anti-aircraft guns, and suddenly it meant they could, they could fly in and dodge around all that stuff and have a good go at hitting the battleships. Um, they, have, they also have these long-range fuel tanks, uh, which came out with HMS Illustrious, which was the new carrier, which came out in September 1940. And um, so that added a decent amount of range. So it means the fleet can sit quite far away from Italy and send its aircraft in and not be in danger of Italian aircraft finding them at dawn the next day and bombing the hell out of them. So these are things that they have towards the autumn of 1940 that actually they didn't have before and because they wanted to go and attack the Italian fleet there but they just didn't have the means before sort of September October 1940. So tell us now then what happens on the 11th of November 1940. Right um, now this had already been delayed once or twice because uh, the fleet air arm wanted to send out a raid on the 21st of October um, which was Trafalgar Day so they were quite, uh, quite aware of the, the significance of, of this possible raid and, and being able to, um, to, to, they hoped, knock out a chunk of the Italian fleet. Um, so they'd intended to do this on um, the 21st of October, but uh, there were various problems with the weather and then HMS Eagle broke down. So Eagle had to send some of its swordfish to Illustrious and um, all of them in the end uh, went from uh, illustrious um, and it was very few aircraft really um, it was you know um, two two waves um, of 12 aircraft and nine aircraft and so this is you know 21 aircraft and they hoped to really destroy some of the most powerful warships in the world at the time so it's you know it's a it's a David against Goliath thing uh, so the first wave flies off at uh, about half past eight on the 11th of November. Second wave follows about an hour later. Um, and it takes them, uh, it takes them about an hour and a half to, um, to, to flying over the sea, um, navigating in darkness um, with no landmarks. Um, and they, you know, give them their due. They hit the target absolutely spot on. Um, now, what the aim of this is, uh, the, what they're aiming to do is to, to have a series of aircraft that come in and illuminate the target. And they're doing this with flares. 
so they hoped to, to, to drop flares to light the place up like a Christmas tree. So then the aircraft with torpedoes and bombs can come in and attack. Tell us, how did the British experience the battle? Um, okay, so um, they flew off, as I say, in, in two waves um, of aircraft. Um, first wave of 12, second wave of nine. Uh, they took off um, at about half past eight, uh, first wave and second wave about an hour later. Um, took them about an hour and a half uh, flying across open sea um, in darkness with no, um, no landmarks. Uh, and, um, and they reached Taranto at about five to 11. Now, the aim of the uh, force was that the first two aircraft would go in, um, they would fly around the back of the harbour um, and drop a string of flares um, along, the, along the port side of things, so along where the, the docks are. Um, and the aim is that this would light up the port like a Christmas tree um, and nicely silhouette all the battleships from the aircraft coming in from seaward. Um, so, uh, I mean, I can, there's, um, there's a, a quite a good account, um, from a chat called John Wellham, who, um, who came in, which I can read. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Um, Okay, so um, the first flare ignited, followed by others, until they hung in the sky like a necklace of sparkling diamonds. This seemed to drive the Italians to even greater fury. The flak doubled in intensity, and a curtain of barrage below us now rose like a cone, like a feathered headdress. Above us, high-angle anti-aircraft was bursting in crackling puffs of smoke. If the tracer was one in five, there must be more metal than air. My God, no one can fly through that. Shades of balaclava. In the increasing chaos, I lost sight of the other aircraft. No matter, a coordinated torpedo attack was not so important as the targets were stationary. We must simply get amidst the battleships and do our own thing. Ahead, there seemed to be a partial hole in the flak, just where I wanted to be. I aimed for it, calling to Pat, hang on, I'm going down. I pushed the nose down, easing back the throttle to avoid over-revving the engine. The speed built up, 140, 150, 155 knots. 
I wanted to dive as steeply as possible, knowing that a gentle angle would, would give me more time in the barrage. Um, so, you know, that gives you an, uh, an idea of, of just what they were facing when the aircraft came in. Um, and uh, the, the pilot that I'm talking about, um, he, he basically, well, he almost crashes into a barrage balloon. Um, his aircraft gets hit in the wing um, as, he's, uh, as he's going down. Um, he almost loses control and he just manages to recover control of the aircraft sort of just, uh, you know, just as he's almost about to fly into the city of Toronto. Um, and he, he's flying around. He's completely lost sight of where his target should be at this point. Um, but uh, he, he sees a battleship, um, a great sort of black bulk of a battleship towering above him ahead. And he drops his torpedo and more or less then gets the hell out of Dodge without... Uh, um, without um, seeing, you know, what's happened, uh, and manages to limp his aircraft back to um, back to HMS Illustrious, and this is kind of it's a fairly similar experience for for most of the aircraft. They're trying to sort of pick their way through this um, this intense barrage of anti-aircraft fire, um, trying to identify the, the the specific battleships that they've um, that they've been identified before the raid, um, because you know knowing where each each one was. Uh, the battleships were kind of arranged in in a sort of horseshoe shape, um, and then you know in the darkness um, with these flares and with all this anti-aircraft fire um, flying around, um, it gets difficult to identify the specific um, ships. So a number of them uh, just kind of drop at anything they can see, um, send their torpedoes running, um, and uh, and turn around um, and get out. Um, now the the um, as far as the Italian experience is concerned, um, they you know they weren't expecting this raid at all. Uh, they didn't really believe that that, um, that 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 such a thing was possible, even though there had been a number of um, raids against um, uh, ships in port at this point. Um, they were used to having intelligence on on where the British fleet was, but they'd actually missed the, um, the the British fleet moving to the point where it could it could launch this raid. Uh, and um, they they'd done things like they'd removed some of the the anti-aircraft guns in the days before, just to sort of try and move them around to a slightly more favourable position. So there weren't actually as many guns there as there could have been. Um, so this this took them somewhat by surprise and. Um, um, yeah, the, the the next thing they know, um, they've got aircraft buzzing around the harbour, um, dropping torpedoes and bombs. Um, and really, before they know it, um, there have been hits made on on several of the battleships. Uh, one of the one of their brand new battleships has has taken at least two torpedo hits, one at either end, um, and it's sinking. Um, and two of its uh, modernised battleships. Uh, again, one of them has been hit very um, has been hit very badly by by two or even three torpedoes, um, and is sinking. And another one has um, is uh, has been hit by one torpedo and is is uh, is taking on a lot of water. So um, they're you know um, they're suddenly they're they're trying to figure out what's what's going on, where these aircraft have, have come from, and and then really their their main priority is then is, is in trying to save trying to save the ships. Um, so the, uh, the Littorio, which is the modern battleship that's, that's hit, that's their absolute priority. That's the, the jewel in their crown and they've got to save that one. Um, so, you know, they're sending ships alongside to try and stop it from sinking. And in the end, they have to uh, just push it to the, 
push it to a sandbank and let it settle onto a sandbank so it doesn't sink completely. Um, and because they're they're giving um, they're giving priority to the Littorio, um, there's uh, there's another um, one of the older battleships um, called the uh, the Giulio Cesare um, is is sinking. Another one, the Caio Giulio, is sinking, and and that one really um, uh, the 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 Giulio Cesare particularly is is that gets left to the to the back of the queue, and you know it's it's in a pretty bad state, and it more or less completely sinks. Um, it's very badly damaged, um, but if they end up managing to just get these three ships onto sandbanks, um, some of them are really, you know, they're, they're, there's a lot of damage. They haven't lost them completely, but, you know, they've got three of their major warships sitting on the bottom, and it's, it's pretty damaging, pretty embarrassing. Would you describe this as a battle or more of a raid? Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting one um, because uh, it doesn't really meet the uh the criteria of a of a naval battle particularly it's not what you think of when you think of a naval battle which is you know um you know like the battle of trafalgar or you know in a modern terms the battle of midway where you've got two fleets at sea more or less freedom to move to to go and hit each other with aircraft and ships um and it's not like that it's you're sending sending a um bunch of aircraft over and uh you know hitting stationary targets and then escaping again so I think the, the, the British side tend to, we, the, the, the British experience is to, to, to consider it a battle. Um, the fleet air arm very much looks at this as, as the fleet air arms Trafalgar. They, they celebrate the anniversary of it in the way that the, the whole Navy celebrates Trafalgar. Um, you know, it had the effect of a battle. It was fairly decisive in its own terms. You know, they, they, they'd lost, um, the Italians had lost, three major warships, uh, you know, temporarily, uh, you know, one permanently, um, two, two temporarily, but, you know, they'd suffered a lot of damage and several aircraft, several of the aircraft have been shot down. Um, but, uh, you know, in terms of you weigh up an old biplane against a battleship, the losses were very much on the Italian side. Um, so you could, um, you would be justified in calling it a raid rather than a battle. In terms of its significance, I think it's potentially up there with a battle. Um, and also, when you kind of think about some of the historical battles um, that Nelson fought, for example, so the, the Battle of the Nile, uh, the Battle of Copenhagen, you know, that was he was taking his ships in and there he was attacking a fleet that was at anchor in a supposedly um safe environment where they, where they didn't think they could be attacked so you know maybe in that nelsonian tradition you can kind of consider it a battle in in that sense but i imagine that's a that's a debate will will continue and and some people will consider it a raid and i think some people will will justify it as a battle tell us about the net result of the battle what damage did it do um okay so uh, i mean in terms of the physical damage i i um mentioned before when I was getting ahead of myself. Uh, it, so the, the three, three of the big battleships are immediately out of action, including, um, you know, including one of the, 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 one of their two newest battleships. Um, one of these is so badly damaged and is such a low priority that it doesn't make it back into the war. So effectively that battleship has been sunk. Um, and two of the others are, are in, in dockyards for, for, for the next, uh, you know, one of them is about, is out of the, the warship or out of the war for over a year. Uh, the modern one, they throw everything at getting that back and that's back in about four months. Um, 
Now that's that's the physical damage. The the sort of moral damage is that that um, that the Italians have lost really half their battleships. Um, yeah, they they've they've taken a, a a big blow. So there's a real threat that that balance of power could now swing back in terms of the uh, the Royal Navy. Um, the Royal Navy is keen to try and press that advantage um, and to, to try and um, so immediately sends a, a convoy through to Malta um, to try and resupply Malta and also build up Malta, Malta as a base where they can send out attacks on uh, on the Italian convoys and on um, and to attack Italian bases on Sicily and things like that. So the uh, the Royal Navy immediately tries to take advantage of that. Um, they're partially successful. Um, there's a, uh, an attempt to resupply Malta with um, fighter aircraft, which um, actually there's, there's a bit of a myth that's been put around that after Taranto, the Italian fleet stayed in port for the rest of the war. And that's just not true at all. Uh, and they did actually come out with, with a couple of their remaining battleships quite soon after that. And that actually kind of um, stymied one of the, the British operations and, and meant it was only partially successful at resupplying Malta. Um, so, you know, the, the Italians are down but not out. Um, they do have to do things like move their fleet further back um, to, a, to a safer port that's further away from, from where the British are operating. So they don't, um, they're not quite such a direct dagger at the throat of, of um, British convoys. Um, and you know this this argument continues to to rage as to as to how important it was. Um, I think psychologically it was a big blow against the Italians, and it meant that they became even more cautious in the way they they employed their fleet. Um, and it sort of it put the advantage psychologically in terms of of the Royal Navy, where you know they they were now. Um, in the ascendant and and really believing they're starting to believe the hype in terms of air power and and um, to, to know that whenever they had an aircraft carrier with them uh, they they had an advantage that the Italians didn't have so um, it, it's one of those ones that's sort of difficult to um, difficult to, to pick out the the exact implications of it but um in in the short term it had a uh, it had quite a big impact and then for the rest of the war um there was a shadow that was hanging over the the italian navy that they didn't want to lose that that much strength in one go again so it kind of made them much more cautious were there any casualties or any losses um yeah um quite um you know fairly significant um on the uh on the italian side um i don't have actual numbers in front of me for which i apologize um and um you know the 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 british lost um lost several aircraft um and uh, not actually that many crews there was there were a couple that were that were um taken prisoner um and um you know i think that the sort of deaths were were in the sort of um um you know fairly uh, there were a handful of, of crews that were lost but considering the effect it had um british losses were pretty light um and um you know italian losses again because the the ships were in in harbor and they didn't have you know, they had the opportunity to beach the ships. Um, there were, you know, you could have. Um, they were quite close to uh, um, tugs and and so rescue vessels and so on. So they 
the kind of losses weren't the kinds of losses that you tend to, to see in major sea battles where, um, I mean, certainly you have a, a battle later on called the Battle of Matapan where the, the Italians lose three cruisers and the loss of life is very heavy in that case. It's, it's not that kind of battle in, in, terms, of, um, in terms of very heavy losses. Um, material losses, yes, but not so much in terms, of, um, in terms of loss of life. What happens to the British Navy after the battle? Um, well, the British Navy, uh, as I say, again, they're in the ascendant, um, but this causes its own implications because um, Hitler seeing uh, Mussolini kind of making a bit of a mess of it in his own backyard and um, realising that, that the Italian um, Navy is, is on the back foot and that they're going to have difficulty um, keeping up their advance in North Africa and uh, and and, um, and posing a threat to the Suez Canal, um, Hitler starts moving significant air forces to um, to Italy um, to, to help Mussolini and to try and wrest that balance of power back from the um, from the Royal Navy. And particularly, the, um, the threat is HMS Illustrious, which is this new modern aircraft carrier. Um, which is capable of of doing things that the um, uh, the British haven't done before. So, um, in January 1941, uh, the uh, the Luftwaffe sends uh, Flieger Corps 10 to the uh, to Sicily, um, and they go out and find HMS Illustrious, and they carry out um, a really intense, really serious um, attack on HMS Illustrious, and put Illustrious. Um, you know, serious, serious damage, very heavy loss of life. Um, their, their aim is to knock Illustrious out completely. They don't quite succeed, but Illustrious is so so heavily damaged uh, that it has to limp into Malta and then later on, um, you know, escape through the, the Suez Canal and, and go and uh, get repairs in um, in America. So it really does kind of, it shifts the pieces around the board in terms of the war as far as the Royal Navy are concerned. So, um, you know, it, it puts the, the Royal Navy in the ascendant, but then it also, um, you know, it really raises their, um, their profile as a threat. And it, it means that, um, that, that the Axis are now taking them extremely seriously as a threat to their, uh, their ambitions in the area and they start throwing more resources at it. So uh, the seesaw swings back the other way. So why was this battle so important in the grander scheme of things? Um, well, in the grand scheme of things, um, it, uh, it, it changed the balance of power temporarily in the Mediterranean. Um, it allowed the, uh, the Royal Navy to, uh, to build up Malta a bit more, which would remain a significant thorn in the Axis side for the rest of the war. Um, it, it did um, reduce the strength of the Italian Navy and, and reduce their um, ability to, uh, to, to stop those, those uh, Allied convoys. Um, and uh, as I said, it also um, it meant that, um, that Hitler then had to get Germany very involved in the war in the Mediterranean, which he didn't want to do. Um, and that became a, a serious drain on um, on German resources. Um, you know, it, it took away resources that he wanted to use for um, for the invasion of the Soviet Union. Um, you know, it meant that he kept having to to drain um, to to move resources. So as the ship as the balance of the war shifted, as things started going badly in Russia, he had to pull forces away from from the Mediterranean, which which took the boot off the Allies' neck, which meant they could build things up there, which meant that, again, 
forces then had to be moved from from another theater to try and build things up so it really sort of started that that seesaw um of of um uh the the balance kind of constantly shifting but it never quite meant that the axis were fully in the ascendant in the mediterranean after that so i think it was really significant um and also just in terms of proving the the, the benefits of air power against a major fleet and particularly a major fleet in port and um you know it has been said a lot and the 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 truth of the exact extent is debated um, but it said that it was a major influence on the Japanese when they were uh, considering their raid against Pearl Harbor and actually proved that, uh, you know, a shallow water port, you could make successful torpedo sh- uh, attacks and knock out battleships in port. So, so there are the implications there, even as far as the Pacific War. Thank you, Matt, so much for joining us and talking to us about the battle for Taranto, or we could say raid, uh, battle or raid. I'm just so proud that you actually entertain. There might be a difference. Do you know what naval I actually history. I, I know. Listened. And you start to use the them. word ship on occasion as well. Oh, look at what well, we've done, depends, Matt. Depends I'm so proud. Really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to go on Twitter now and say, look, we're just recording and Alina used the word ship. Yeah, and she did it in the Mary yeah. Rose one last week as well. She knows the difference. Oh, wow. <laughs> just as long as you remember to use boat for submarine don't confuse her yet we'll get to that later okay okay all right we'll move on pages please baby pages. steps matt baby steps <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah but thank you nice. honestly for joining us that was a really really great talk and um i learned a lot thank you very much and i'm assuming everybody else did because i didn't even know there was a battle in the mediterranean so thank you for that you're very welcome Join us tomorrow when Virginia Campbell will be talking all about prostitution in ancient Rome. Can't wait to learn about that. And stay tuned because soon we will be bringing you a special week of programmes on African-American history. The ripple effect of what happened to George Floyd has gripped the world. And we've taken our time with this, but we felt it was important to try and put those events in perspective and not only talk about how America came to be at this point, it is at now, this crucial point, but also why. We've interviewed some fantastic historians. There's some poignant, inspirational and utterly tragic material in some of these podcasts. It's been a highly emotional ride recording them and we're really looking forward to sharing them with you as well. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus and we would really appreciate it as we would love to do so. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.